Welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. I'm your host where every Tuesday and Friday I have the ongoing privilege now for six plus years, 350 episodes taped where I have the honor of sitting here and shining the Franklin Covey leadership spotlight on some of the world's most renowned influencers, best-selling authors, business titans, Harvard School fellows and professors, people that have survived major tragedies or made major discoveries that make all of our lives as leaders more effective. Perhaps each of you are either a formal leader in an organization leading people. Perhaps you're an informal leader in your family with your friends on a committee on some kind of service organization. This podcast is designed to invest in you each week, and sometimes we highlight Franklin Covey's internal thought leaders as the most trusted leadership firm in the world, and other times we like to pick people out that we think have a great point of view. Today, our guest wrote perhaps the best titled book in printing, Burn the Boats. His name is Matt Higgins. You know him as a serial entrepreneur. He is a frequent guest shark on Shark Tank. He is a uh, frequent lecturer and teacher at the Harvard Business School, and today he's going to teach us a lot of lessons about entrepreneurials. What are the common principles that people align with and often violate on their path to business success? Matt Higgins, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the shout-out on my title. It's very true, sir. Um, It's excellent. Uh, uh, Burn the Boats is a strategy we often debate in the C-suite around should we burn the boats, should we not, should we have something to go back to. Your your tagline is toss plan B overboard and unleash your full potential. Matt, we're going to get into a half dozen key business principles through stories and concepts you teach. What I would like you to do is reorient our audience back to your journey, some of the different sporting investments you've made in terms of your career, some of the businesses that you've owned or co-owned, and I'd love to have you start literally in high school. Ah, we're going back to the beginning. We begin at the beginning. So uh, uh, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, My my journey begins in Queens, New York. Uh, I grew up in abject poverty. Those words sort of lose their meaning, sort of cliche, but what does that mean? It means I grew up on blocks of government cheese that literally said, brought to you by the USDA, and I would sell flowers on street corners and scrape gum under tables at McDonald's, basically anything I could do to survive. And I was born to a disabled mom. She actually had um, obesity and everything that goes along with it. Um, by the time she passed, she was almost almost 400 pounds. So my early framework was this desperation of taking care of a, of a parent. Also, like a kid, you just you know, want to be selfish. So how do I escape through poverty? And then spending many, many years uh, just realizing that the cavalry wasn't going to come. And my original burn the boats moment, which was the genesis of this book, I didn't have language for it when I was a kid, was out of desperation, I came up with a life hack. And that hack was, if you drop out of high school and crush your GD, it's usually an oxymoron, you don't think of GD and crushing it as a high school dropout, but if you do well enough, you can convert your GD score into a GPA. And that was my insight. I decided this was what I was going to do. It was going to enable me to get a job as a college student and make, uh, you know, $8 an hour instead of $3.75 at McDonald's. And then when I went to my guidance counselor and everyone else, they said, you're absolutely crazy and you're going to be a loser for your whole life. And the burn the burn the boats moment isn't the decision to drop out. It's the decision to ensure that I can't retreat from it. And I decided I failed every single class in high school except for typing, uh, which proved useful writing this book, because I realized that 
this is such an audacious plan that everybody is rejecting that if I give myself any retreat and if I don't sabotage it, I won't go through with it. And that is what I did. I failed every single class. And then when the moment came, I thought, what the hell am I doing? Uh, but I went through with it. I took my GD. I entered college at 16 and I went to my prom on the debate team with a 3.5 GPA and the rest was easy. <laughs> no, not quite that simple, but that was the beginning of my burn the boats philosophy. Matt, it's I think so uh, vulnerable of you to talk about that because so many people will watch and listen to these podcasts and we see everybody at the pinnacle of success often, but we don't relate often or appreciate the fact that everyone's got a journey and a story and not everybody came out of uh, Princeton, not everybody came out of Harvard. You have, a, you have a remarkable career that's beyond your early struggle, you might say academically. Would you take a few minutes and talk about some of the roles you've played on major sports teams and what you're doing now with your, um, your company? Yeah, what was fascinating about um, this hack, which I didn't know it at the time, but I feel like I tapped into the factory settings in that uh, compounding. Warren Buffett talks about compounding as the most important financial principle, which it is, but it's compound is actually even more impactful with your career. Because I dropped out of high school, started college at 16, I pulled forward all my professional ac accomplishments by like 15%. And it allowed more time for me to reap exponential rewards. So I started uh, as a newspaper reporter for the Queen's Tribune and was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize by the time I was 20 years old. Uh, I ended up working for the mayor and uh, actually left twice when I didn't get what I wanted. And by the time I was 26, I became the youngest press secretary in history. So I went from making 375 an hour at 16 to $100,000 uh, a year by 26. Unfortunately, my mom passed away that morning, uh, which proves the cavalry is not coming. And that shaped a lot of my worldview. But because I started so early, I've been able to have this you know, fantastical career. I ended up running the New York Jets, uh, oversaw the business of the team. I ended up overseeing the redevelopment of the World Trade Center site after 9-11. I was chief operating officer. I partnered up with Stephen Ross at the Miami Dolphins and became vice chair overseeing the business of the team and minority owner. And I put together this consumer portfolio of great brands. And if you were to tie it all together, like how does this all hang? I've always been a builder and an architect in chaos. And when you're a CEO of a startup or a founder of a startup, you, you there's no template. My whole life came with no template, starting from that little kid sitting on the steps of Cardoza High School. So I began to turn that into an advantage. And so I tend to be very comfortable in environments of chaos where it's not quite sure what we're going to do. And the connective tissue of every Forrest Gump-like move I've made throughout my career is this idea of self-sabotage and putting myself in situations where I don't have all the answers figured out. The cavalry is not coming. What a great phrase for every entrepreneur, business leader, parent, spouse out there. Matt, I'm going to jump into some of your business principles. First, you, you write about an app you have, I think either on your watch or on your phone, that gives you a reminder several times daily. It's kind of haunted me since I read that line in your book, not the first time I'd heard of it, but would you uh, remind our listeners and viewers why and what is happening to you five times a day? Yeah, I mean, look, my, my whole book is a little bit of an inside joke in my head because this phrase, burn the boats, is so bombastic. And we relate to it often in society. We can do a little history lesson later, but uh, as this idea of like, burn the boats to hell with everyone. And what I tried to set out to do with this book is actually appropriate this phrase that goes back to the beginning of recorded history and, and appropriate it on behalf of the anxiety-laden, the risk-adverse, all those people who, like me, 
struggle with legacy issues. In my case, it was the legacy of poverty and anxiety. And getting to this idea of we croak this app, I'm a cancer survivor. I had testicular cancer when I was 32 years old. You know, Finally, I had achieved some stability in my life. I'm running the New York Jets, got a big contract, have a three-month-old baby boy, healing has begun. And then I get diagnosed with testicular cancer and your whole life flashes before you. However, I remember when I was at Sloan Kettering, all the things that keep me awake at night, all this anxiety that I carried faded away because none of it held up against the juxtaposition and the prospect of imminent death. And I was like, why is it that this almost brings a version of peace that I can't access day to day? when I am you know, enmeshed in the grind, right? When everything seems so important, but when I'm actually facing that I might die, I also realize what is important. And then when it was an o- over and I didn't die and I ended up uh, in remission, I sort of lost touch with this um, freedom that came with being in touch with my own mortality. And I started researching, how do I capture that? And uh, in Bhutan, they think about death five times a day. They're the happiest people on the world. I don't know how we know this, but I just take it uh, as true. Uh, they're very happy. And I start saying, that's what I need to do. I need to reconnect my mortality every day. So when something overwhelms me and overtakes me and I can't manage my anxiety, I tap into it. And it does the opposite of what people think. You may be listening to this and oh, my God, I don't want to think about death because you think you're going to be afraid. It does the opposite. It liberates you from the the, the, the minutia that doesn't really matter. And it enables you to focus on what you care the most about, which is your family, children, love, and not performing well on a podcast. No disrespect, Scott. I really want to crush this interview. But in the scheme of me dying, it doesn't matter. So far, so good. If I'm not mistaken, <laughs> in your book, you write that there's an app called We Croak. <laughs> we Croak. And it pings you five times a day and reminds you simply that you're going to die. Yeah, in a very lyrical way. Sometimes it's, you know, Socrates or it's uh, something obscure, but it's not, it would be a little bit redundant if it's like, you're going to die. Uh, but yeah, it pings me. My, things, my kids think I'm insane. So I have to just <laughs> secretly go when it goes off like, oh, here's dad again, thinking about death. <laughs> I actually think there's uh, a great uh, reminder to all of us about how precious our time here in this life, regardless of what you believe or may know or may think or may hope is happening in some subsequent life. It really helps to focus you on what's important, where you're spending your time, which leads me to this next business principle. In your book, you write this section called, I've already put in so much time, energy, and money. And you teach this concept around what you call sunk costs. Let me read you a sentence and I'll have you elaborate. Uh, What you do now ought to be what's best for you going forward, not to justify what happened in the past, I'm guessing everyone can relate to this, especially entrepreneurs who have mortgaged their home, taken loans from their family. They've got enormous stress trying to build their dream, people with a side hustle, and maybe their ego is tied to their original idea or to being right or proving others wrong. Give us a little masterclass and how do we know when sunk cost is a smart business principle to stay aligned to and when that is dragging you down, you have to burn the boats and pivot to something else. Wow, great question. Um, I, I, I wrote a lot of what I wrote in this book as a, somewhat of a, con, a confessional because I find when you achieve a certain station in life, 
uh, people talk about failure, but they summarize it. They don't really illustrate it because the reality is most people want to look as if everything's in their rearview mirror. I attempted with my book to demonstrate that success happens in spite of, not because of. When you see the finished product, like, oh, you're successful because you're a natural orator or you have money. And, and what I tried to do with the book is actually show all the things that I had to surmount my own quote unquote deficiencies in order to get where I got. So one of the reasons why I think people struggle with sunk cost is because they're embarrassed to look flaky. And so they have this invisible rule that says consistency is everything. Uh, and Emerson actually talks about consistency as the hobgoblin of fools, uh, which I totally agree with. And so I wanted to demonstrate in this book all the differing meandering paths that I took to get to where I am and my comfort with walking away. So for example, I have a very expensive piece of wallpaper on my wall. It's called the law degree. It was a quarter of a million dollars. And when I graduated school, I was supposed to start at Skadden Arps. Uh, top one of the top law firms, and yet I was working in the government. And by the time I graduated law school, I was making more than I would have made as a first year lawyer. So what did I do? I handed back the the advance and I never even took the bar exam because I didn't want to be tempted, no disrespect to lawyers out there, to ever be a lawyer. And now someone say, oh my God, that's such a waste. It's not a waste. I oversee lawyers all the time. I oversee a ton of them. I do lots of different deals. I understand when I'm being ripped off with the bill but I didn't feel the need to be a lawyer. And I think when I talk to young people and I get these gut-wrenching DMs and say, I'm living someone else's life. I was like, whose life is it? It's dad's life. Dad thought I should be an accountant, but what I really wanted to do was be an artist, but I needed to, uh, you know, to give his approval. So now I've taken four years to get this accounting degree and I hate it. And I think we all need permission to realize there are no wasted experiences in life. You'll figure out how to extract value. And don't worry about being a flake because most people just aren't acknowledging their meandering route. They're airbrushing it for Instagram. So I tried to take the airbrush off and show all the crazy ways in which my life has taken these detours. And I am always able to extract more value from an experience than I invested because that's my mindset. Matt, beautifully said, one of our previous guests, a friend of mine is Stedman Graham. Most people know him as a uh, entrepreneur, philanthropist, uh, very strong into uh, urban youth leadership development, and I think the three-plus-decade partner of Oprah Winfrey. Stedman writes a lot about identity, several books on that, and he says most of us are still living, fulfilling the identity somebody else put on us, typically our parents, and he's, like you, passionate about creating your own identity and going aligning with that. Uh, let's talk about crickets. I think I even saw this episode. In your book, you talk about I think it was probably a uh, shark experience, but I'd love to have you talk about it. You, there's a quote that you said, the right time to jump ship isn't when all hope is lost. It's often much, much earlier than that. The right time to take a leap is as soon as you see something better. Now, I'd, I'd like to challenge that and have you prove your point because I think that could be misinterpreted as for multi-passionate people who perhaps don't have natural focus or natural disciplined thought or action, that they might end up you know, bailing too soon or looking at the shiny or squirrel as it may no be known in you know, the, the, the attention deficit language. How, how do you know when to double down and when to quote you, leap as soon as you see something better? And maybe you tie that to the, to the cricket scenario or not. Yeah, I, look, I, I think this is this is a, a retort to those who feel the pressure to stay consistent because they're going to look flaky. So that's number one. It's granting permission to move on to the next thing. But you have to counterbalance that with if you are, as my boss says, my partner says, uh, don't be a grasshopper, that if you jump from thing to thing, 
the problem is you'll you will lose your own self-respect, right? Because you will leave so many people disappointed. You'll leave people feeling like you don't honor your word. And you'll also deny yourself the benefit of reaping the returns uh, because you didn't allow it to play out. So how, what is the right frame of mind, in my opinion? Accept the fact that the joy of living is in the striving, that we are all about perpetual pursuit because we're always trying to touch the ceiling of our own potential. And the only way to do that is to keep expanding. The second point is it's about leverage. The moment when you're going to be most uh, effective at securing what you want is when you have a degree of leverage because you are you have a great job or you're, 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 you're on the right path. That is when you have the most opportunities, whereas when everything has been decimated and you don't have leverage, uh, you're, gonna not, you're not going to be as effective and, uh, in securing what you want. So this isn't a recipe for you know, ADD and indulging every impulse. It's permission to allow yourself to move on, to level up. And I find it's not that most people struggle actually with how to rein in their passion because they're jumping from one thing to the next. I think the vast majority of people are actually not wired that way. They're wired to stay in put because they are worried about sunk cost. They are worried about being judged by somebody else. They are worried about seeking someone else's approval. So this is meant to say it's okay that you desire to constantly pursue perpetual growth. That's how humans are most satisfied. And the way to have a governor on the engine is to ensure that you're not leaving in your wake half-finished projects everywhere, because that'll eventually erode your self-respect. Matt, as a guest shark on the Shark Tank, you obviously have invested in a lot of businesses. You've passed on some, you've gotten deep into some that you've invested in to help make them successful. I'm sure not all of them have been blockbusters. Are there some commonalities that you would say, hey, listen up, anybody with a dream, a side hustle, a startup, a project that is incubating in your head and you're not quite sure what mistakes to avoid or where to put your time, are there maybe two or three principles of success that you would remind everybody, if you do these couple of things, it's gonna give you a head start, it's gonna accelerate your likelihood of success? Yeah, I love this question. Uh, number one, you burn the boats for goals, uh, not for tactics. When people question the book or makes them feel uncomfortable, like that sounds like a recipe for doing the same thing over and over again. Try harder does not mean try same. It means try different. And I find when a lot of entrepreneurs are failing, it's because they are, are applying blind persistence to something that obviously isn't working and they fail to zoom out and say, wait, what was my goal in launching this product? Most people, when they launch a product or a business, the product or the business itself is not the goal. It's a means to an end. And the end is freedom. The end is making sure your kids never have to experience what I did, uh, eating government cheese or getting evicted in tenant court. That's the goal. That's the thing you've burned the boats for. So if you say very focused on, okay, what's my goal? You'll be very comfortable iterating, killing your own bad ideas like I am, because you know it doesn't matter. That's not your goal anyway. So that's one. Shark Tank, and this applies to anybody out there, I find the majority of people who go on Shark Tank are, are going in pursuit of salvation. Uh, they have uh, amplified that, uh, that there's someone out there in the world who if only they were to get involved, they would change the trajectory of an otherwise failing business. And that never works out. Just because Mark Cuban or somebody else invests in your company, or just because you go on that TV show, if it's a losing idea or you don't have what it takes to make it successful, that's not going to change things. And to, so to me, it's like a proxy for how entrepreneurs often behave when they go down the wrong path. They think the one thing is the thing. And what I've learned above all else in life, 
No one thing is ever the thing. No 40 under 40 award is the thing that's going to suddenly make your career all come together. No person is going to complete you. No one thing is ever the thing. So, so if you're an entrepreneur out there and you have decided that if you could just achieve this accolade or this single contract is going to change everything, that is the wrong thing. You're focused on the wrong thing. And I, if you go back and look at all the episodes of Shark Tank, I would say more than half the people are on there because they're hoping to enlist, enlist someone else in a rescue mission. And as we started this conversation, the Calvary is never coming. Matt, let's take that deeper because I'd like you to get granular on what are some of the mindsets, the behaviors, the disciplines, the practices, the routines, the habits that successful business leaders have. So would you maybe just rewind in your head of all the people that you've either seen on Shark Tank or you've invested independently? Give us some, uh, they do what? What are the things they do on a routine basis that separates them from the other 95% that fail? Yes, so uh, this is a less routine, more abstract, but it's a principle and a value. The number one commonality I see amongst very successful people, let's let's leave aside the Elon Musk of the world, you know, who create reality distortion fields around them, but for the rest of us, mere mortals, the number one uh, quality I see in common is uh, over-indexing on self-awareness, that they manage to cultivate a blend of confidence and humility that unlocks self-awareness. Now, we tend to think these words are uh, mutually exclusive, confidence and humility, but actually it's not true. Confidence enables you to look within and not be afraid what you're going to find. The greatest arbitrage anywhere is not at the shelves of Barnes & Noble. It's within you. It's whatever it is that makes you uh, unable to handle conflict with your employees and fire that toxic uh, employee or makes you afraid to pivot, whatever it is, it's having the confidence to look within and the humility to acknowledge that I'm failing so that you could make that pivot. And so the unlock for all that is self-awareness. When I see great CEOs and I say, oh, this person's going to figure it out, it's because they over-index on, on self-awareness. So now you may say, well, Matt, but how do you cultivate self-awareness in a leader. And here's my tactic. And I do this with everybody, uh, founders, or I do this with employees. I overshare. I take risks. I share something that um, feels embarrassing or uncomfortable. And by doing that, I create space for vulnerability. I'm modeling what that looks like. And when you do that, you're giving a gift to the recipient because they're like, wait, you just share the fact that you have one testicle and what you had to go through getting testosterone shots your whole life. I'm just randomly picking up a previously embarrassing detail of my life. When you do that, the other person takes the first step too. And now you're creating a culture of uh, self-awareness. So I hope that's not too abstract, but I do think as the Italians say, the fish rots from the head. So I tend to focus a lot on psychology because I think that's more of an unlock than taking ice cold plunges every day at five in the morning like Instagram would tell you to do. I think psychology is way more important than, than particular habits. Oh, it's not abstract. Much of our audience is wondering which testicle, testicle were you left with? So you gave a very clear visual I, By the way, it's a very I, uncomfortable question, but it is the right one. I no, don't sorry. Know. No, the right one is the prosthetic. I, I don't want to know. <laughs> you have a prosthetic testicle. Okay. No, right, right. Okay. See you, see you. Now we're over now, now it's burned in my psyche forever. Hey, one last thing for your audience. I can, I'm not wearing them right now, unfortunately, but I got dog tags made. After I went through this journey of... Like, this is pretty emasculating, at least they got 32 years old. And I'm like, what's this going to do for my life? And I ended up becoming unable to have any more kids. And I know all these like male identity issues. And then I had this epiphany when I was at a group session at Sloan Kettering. And I was talking to um, all these other men. And they were talking about how 
Um, you know, they just feel uncomfortable from a body standpoint. I'm like, well, I never found it to be the most flattering part of my anatomy anyway, and I can't relate. And I started thinking in one group session, you know, I'm probably the only guy in the United States that has a GD, a JD, and one testicle. I am one of one. And I was like, and for whatever reason, that made me feel special and exceptional. And I realized exceptional comes in all sorts of ways that make us differentiated. So I had dog tags made, which I still wear all the time, which I half the balls, twice the man. See, you started, you asked which one, now I'm going deep. No, no, you started it for the record. But, you know, <laughs> Matt, on a, on, a, on, a, on a more serious note, it's interesting that testicular cancer, I think, tends to hit men shockingly early. I have several friends that yep. went through a very similar scenario to you. Give a little bit of a PSA on that because I think it's important for men and girlfriends and partners and spouses and moms and whoever else is in our lives to recognize, can you tell us what is the typical age frame of a man who uh, contracts, if you will, testicular cancer? It's shockingly early. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah so it's, it does hit very early. I'm not going to give the scientific range. I'm going to say it's probably somewhere between 16 and 35. So if you're out there and you do feel pain, uh, number one, and you're young, don't think you're too young to have it because you, because I was only 32 when I had it. Uh, two, that you don't want to wait till you feel pain uh, because that can be too late. And there's all there's tons of other reasons why you might feel pain in your testicles. So you want to get uh, comfortable checking your testicles to feel for lumps. There's tons of YouTube videos about how to do that. And most importantly, I think men do not engage their own body and don't want to acknowledge a discomfort or swelling because they're so afraid about what it could mean. Testicular cancer is one of the most treatable, survivable cancers out there. The survival rate is something like 97% when it's caught early. So it's not something to be afraid of. It's something to deal with. And I had testicular cancer. I uh, lost my right testicle. I have gone on to have an amazing life. I have uh, testosterone shots every day. I could lift 8,000 pounds. I could save you if you were in a burning car. I could probably lift it with one arm. And it's all because I had that. So all kidding aside, don't be afraid to check. If you feel anything wrong, you go to the doctor. They'll give you a sonogram. Most likely, it's something totally unrelated to testicular cancer. But if God forbid it is, it's very, very treatable. There are only 7,000 cases a year, and most, most survive. Matt, for you, was it a self-check or was it actually pain in that area? It was pain. I just had a baby and, and you well, know, technically I that's not it. true. I mean, let's just clarify. I mean, yeah, no, it's fair. I shared in the having of the baby. Thank I think it, it was, I participated. You, you helped did. create a baby, oh, just to be clear. Okay. I did, whatever. Yes, exactly. I helped birth a child into the world uh, without actually delivering it. And so I had a pain in my, in my right uh, testicle and I kept ignoring it like, come on, it can't be. Huh. And, and then I went in. And within 48 hours, I was going under the knife. Wow! And that was wow. when I when I had that feeling, what I call zero time. I'd be like, wait, now I'm not so interested in, in townhomes and Brooklyn Heights anymore. It doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. And but uh, but I came out the other side of it, and I and I have incorporated into my identity, and frankly, think it's kind of badass. I mean, I know you're sitting here right now wishing you had those dog tags, which would be cultural appropriation if you tried to borrow mine. So it all worked out in the end. <laughs> None of that last part is true. You have a friend named Mike Tannenbaum. He's a fairly well-known ESPN commentator. Great story in the book I'd like you to share. In essence, the tagline, if you will, of this, the takeaway is our greatest asset can also become our fatal albatross, right? Our strengths can become our weaknesses when overplayed. Take a few minutes and talk about Mike Tannenbaum and what's the lesson for leaders, parents, colleagues, friends, humans, 
to learn from your spotlight on Mike. Man, I love this story in the book. And I'm, I'm so happy that so many people shared these vulnerable stories throughout the book. There are like 50 of them. There are people of all levels and who are carrying something. Again, the boats in my book are a metaphor for all that beckons you to retreat. So in the case of Mike Tannebaum, he was the GM of the New York Jets. Uh, he got fired. It's a tough, tough job. And when I ended up uh, going to the Dolphins, we brought him over as the uh, GM. And he got, a, he got another shot. Uh, now, Mike is one of the most intense human beings. And he deals with areas where he doesn't quite have the answers with an incredible burning intensity. Now, often that's an asset, but there was times when things were going wrong where if Mike was coming near you and he was holding like a pencil, you thought he might stab you in the eye, like literally. And if anyone else would show joy or laughter during a game or we were losing, Mike would hunt them down and be like, what's so funny? And so as time went on, his intensity started burning so hot that it was creating all sorts of you know problems around him. And I had to pull him aside and say, Mike, I love you and I really care about you. But that intensity that took you as a young kid and made you one of the youngest GMs and everything, that intensity is actually going to cost you your job. I don't know how it's going to go down, but I suspect we are going to be having a conversation one day and it'll be your last day in this job. You have to tackle it. And as Mike went on this journey of self-discovery, I'd go back to the Italians, the fish rots from the head. Uh, Mike had this fear of, of, of you know, I, I got all this pressure on me. I'm the youngest this. I was the youngest to that. And the only way I know how to be great is to bring so much intensity and outwork everyone. And I'll eventually figure it out. Basically, he had one pitch, which was a fastball. And as he went through this process, he started working with an organizational psychologist that I bring in all the time. Her name is Dr. Finfer. Uh, he, it gave him permission to be flawed. It gave him permission to deal with a lot of the anxiety that he carried was because he grew up with nothing. And he was always worried about going back to that place where he had nothing and uh, all the issues that propel us to act in ways that are aberrant somehow, right? And he started giving, figuring out how to construct an environment around him that would bring him peace. I mean, I show up one day and he's listening to like air supply and he's got a massive fish tank in the wall and the lights are all down. I'm like, what happened to you? She really did a number. I said, work with you, not give you a lobotomy. And uh, anyway, <laughs> long story short, I tell the story in the book of this journey that Mike had about giving himself permission to tackle this uh, intensity and anxiety. And he came out the other side as a much, much better, more secure leader. Matt, I'm mindful of our time. I want to talk about Shark Tank because everybody's interested. We actually have two of your fellow sharks that are in the hopper to interview in the next four or five months. You are the first shark to come on our program. What's it like? What's the dynamic behind the scenes? Uh, what, what, what would people find interesting that you'd like to share about the shark community? Yeah, well, um, uh, number one, it's as real as you see on TV, only it's more condensed. Uh, when I went on the show, I talk about this in the book as well. Now here, I just told you I came a high school dropout, 16 years old, GED, government cheese. Now I'm sitting on Shark Tank competing against Mark Cuban. What's funny about how they do it, everyone's very nice, but there isn't a lot of like Shark Tank mentoring school. So you always sit at the end. Oftentimes they put Lori Guineer next to you because I think she's like the shark den mother and like tries to calm you down. Once the cameras are on, it's like it's so intense and you can't get a word, word in edgewise. So when I went on the show the night before, I was completely freaked out. I don't, I never see anybody acknowledge imposter syndrome who went on the show. So uh, for whatever reason, maybe I'm the only guy who ever experienced it, but I, but I experienced it in a huge way. 
And I had to do everything to get my head together, including listen to Eminem, uh, lose yourself on a, on a loop for like two and a half hours just to try to get myself uh, up for it. And I pulled, I pulled Damon John aside. Damon and I grew up two miles from each other in Queens. Obviously he's black, I'm white, very different background, but he worked at Red Lobster, I worked at McDonald's. We both hustled our way to get where we are. And I felt like I could confide in him. I said, I gotta tell you the truth. I'm really embarrassed, but I am so freaked out right now. I really feel like I have no business being on this set and how I'm gonna compete. And he said one of the most profound things anyone's ever said to me about imposter syndrome. He said, first of all, he said, F everybody else. You know, he said, screw them. They don't know what it's like to go through what we went through. And he said to me, Matt, you belong here because you are here. And I felt like it was, you know, this incredibly philosophical thing from thousands of years ago. Like, of course, there is no final arbiter of belonging. And I took my seat on that seat on that set and I competed my ass off and I won that first deal. So um, number one, authentic. Number two, uh, towards the end, I think it's between the ninth and 10th pitch, which is a long day. They always have a shot <laughs> of a drink. And I was like, I were like, come on, Matt, have a, it was Sambuca or something. I'm like, a shot? I can barely function here. I'm so exhausted <laughs> from looking at all these pitches. Every pitch ranges from about 30 minutes to 45 minutes. The money is real. And when it's your own money, you know, you care a lot. And I'd say most of the competition is trying to get the attention of the entrepreneur back on you and away from Kevin or Barbara or whatever it is. By the way, when I went on the first time, I don't know if Mark Cuban does this all the time, but they, they blasted a Purple Rain onto the set and Mark Cuban's walking around with a shot singing Purple Rain with a pretty good high pitch. Matt, how many episodes have you taped? Uh, I think I did uh, four episodes and I did uh, a bunch of updates actually. And now I'm working on my own show. By the way, real quick, I talk about this in a book too that um, after I finished Shark Tank, this is the question I always ask myself when I do something big in life. And then I, you experience the inevitable melancholy after you surmount something yes. really hard. I always yeah. feel this, right? Marathon runners feel this, Olympians feel this. I was like, oh, now what? I, I, I realized the joy was in the training, not in the accomplishment. And I missed the training. And when Shark Tank was over, I was like, oh, what could be even harder than Shark Tank? I was like actually creating my own Shark Tank. So I partnered up with Mark Burnett and we created a new show called Business Hunters on CNBC that was to help guide people through the journey of becoming an entrepreneur. In the beginning of the book, I say, look, I don't know if the show will ever air, but I shot eight, shot eight episodes. I love it. And I hedged, of course, and the show got canceled. It never even aired, including uh, all the other shows that CNBC had on night. So heartbreaking, crushing. And back to my life philosophy and principle, every crisis does open an aperture to another universe where you can extract even more value than what was taken from you. I shot that show. I learned what it takes to produce a show. I was executive producer. I was like, I'm not going to be defeated. I created my own production company. And now I'm in the process of launching two new shows, two new business shows. Sometimes a disappointment turns into an appointment. The book is Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard, and Unleash Your Full Potential. Matt Higgins, thanks for joining us today. You were a class act. Appreciate your vulnerability and your insights on entre entrepreneurship, on leadership, and really just how to live your life to the fullest because we're all going to die. And you're told that five we times are. a day. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. I appreciate it. Make sure you DM me after you read it. Let me know what you think, and I'll get back to you. Thank you, Matt. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>